Good afternoon. It is Friday, March 25th, and this is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group. And Karen, I hope I don't butcher your last name. I meant to ask you this earlier, but I believe, let let me try, it's Karen Barbanel. Perfect. How did I do? A plus, A plus, not an easy job. (laughs) Karen wrote a a book that just, uh, the the name just enthralled me when I saw Mm -hmm. it, Birthing the Elephant. And for any of us who have actually launched a business from scratch, um, you know, we actually can feel uh, the pain of that. But the cool thing is mm-hmm. on the cover of this book is actually just the cutest little baby elephant and uh, a woman just, you know, kind of running across the page. And the book is called The Woman's Go-For-It Guide to Overcoming the Big Challenges to Launching a Business. And, Karen, as I mentioned earlier, we have uh, executive girlfriends group members that go the entire gamut of the scale from senior executive women who maybe are trying to figure out, you know, what what's next for them after they uh, mm-hmm. get burned out from corporate America, which right. so many people are right mm-hmm. now, um, down to the mid-scale uh, companies, maybe family-owned, maybe, uh, uh, as uh, Tiffany was just sharing with us, you know, a company that had been owned by one person for a long time and is now owned by, by investors. Uh, so lots of different scenarios, uh, including all the way down to those uh, – who run, and I say down, it, it in many cases is up, uh, you know, mm-hmm. those who have started their own business or been part of a startup team uh, or who are in between successes, not really mm-hmm. knowing whether they want to go off on their own or actually to get back in the corporate fray. So, Karen, I'd like to start off by hearing a little bit about your background because you, you've got a very, very interesting corporate background yourself. Yes, I, um, I do. I started out um, actually at... Booz Allen, when it was Booz Allen Hamilton, it now split mm-hmm. off, so it's now become two companies, but it was the major consulting firm. And I worked for about 12 years there, and I sort of advanced. I started out in the marketing group, and that was always what I did. But I moved up through the ranks and ultimately became a senior marketing executive at Booz Allen, and um, a pretty intense environment. Um, these consulting firms are, you know, high energy and um, a lot of activity. I wasn't on the consulting side. I was on the marketing, the support side. Um, And as things go, the wheel turns, and Booz Allen decided to pull back its marketing staff. And so basically I was downsized or deacquisitioned or whatever word we want to use. Um, This was some time ago. And at the time I had um, my son had been born about a year ago a year before. So I really was at a crossroads in terms of my own personal situation. I, you know, um, based on my background, I could go out and look for another senior corporate marketing job. I live in New Jersey, easy commute to the city. Um, But that really meant um, I'd have to go in at a very high level based on where I was. And I was, uh, you know, we were talking about a job that was going to be you know, tremendously time-consuming in terms of commuting and working. And the other option to me was to um, basically take the leap into entrepreneurship and really try to build a marketing communications business of my own. And for a variety of reasons, I decided to take that second route. And it was a very interesting transition because at the time, I really knew nothing about launching a business. Um, You know, I really had... Uh, a writing background, a uh, kind of corporate marketing background. Booz Allen was, you know, a very high-powered place. You had lots of support.
port, you know, the you know, there was the whole Xerox room, there was the everything that you could possibly need to do your business. You had a nice office, you had a title, all of the kind of infrastructure that you get from a major corporation was there in place. And suddenly I was off on my own, you know, waiting for the phone to ring, chasing the <laughs> FedEx truck, you know, trying to figure out how to make my computer work, which I really wasn't very technically savvy. So I, it was a huge shift for me, and I really wasn't prepared. And it was kind of interesting because I did manage to weather it. And ultimately, I mean, I was very fortunate. Booz Allen, um, you know, I consulted for a while with Booz, and then they ended up being a client of mine for quite a while, which was great. And so I slowly built up a clientele. And ultimately, I was working with, um, I've been working with some major clients, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Accenture, BCG. But it was a kind of a slow build. And I have to confess that I didn't really know what I was doing in making this transition. But out of every, you know, such a tough situation comes an opportunity. And I ended up actually writing a book that was a, a previous book to this one called How to Succeed on Your Own. And that book really came out of the difficulty of making this move from employee to entrepreneur. I started talking to a lot of other women that I knew who were kind of in the same place. And we all sort of agreed that we didn't really understand sort of basically the emotional aspects of reshaping your identity when you make a right. move from employee to entrepreneur. It's really, it's not just a, you know, you're not just changing jobs or careers. You, you're really changing your identity when you make a move like this. And no one really talks very much about that. Right. And so that was uh, inspired how to succeed on your own. And then some years later, with everything that was happening, the explosion of small business and you know the internet uh, changing really, which is really a game changer for you know small businesses. I really decided to revisit this whole concept, and that it kind of was where Birthing the Elephant um, evolved. Um, and my co-author and I, Bruce Freeman, um, decided to team up and and write a book about uh, you know how how to launch. And what we were looking at was interestingly not just the economics. You know, it's not a book that tells you about how to put together a business plan or you know get right. you know go to your banker. It's really more a book about how do you make this transition. And what we did was we sort of mapped, which is where the birthing the elephant name came from. We mapped the first 22 months of a startup, and um, which, by the way, is the, the birth cycle of an elephant, 22 <laughs> months. And um, we took a look at sort of we talked to a lot of different entrepreneurs, and we kind of mapped out the launch cycle into four stages. And then we looked at all the things that could happen in those different stages to give people a kind of a roadmap so that they would be more prepared when things came up, um, you know, to handle them. Because it is really um, it's a roller coaster when you're in launch mode. And I'm sure Tiffany, who's dealing with this and is kind of trying to restart something, anyone who launches knows that that's really true. So we really wanted to give people a kind of a guide that would take right. them step by step through the process. So that's how it came about. Right. And so with with the first chapter in the book, you, you start out talking about designing your destiny. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think the one thing uh, that stands out to me about my entrepreneurial life is that, you know, at least for me, and, and this may not mm -hmm. be true of all, you know, I start out with this just incredibly lofty goal. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can have really uh, high goals in, in corporate life, but you don't typically try to change the world because um, it's so hard to turn mm -hmm. the mothership. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, in in sure. a company, and just the whole issue of the comfort level with status quo is something that I think so many companies are dealing with right now. But you know, I I really did want to leave a destiny and mm-hmm. and wanted to leave a marked change behind and it didn't have to you know it didn't have to have my name on it i mean i don't want to uh, imply that but mm-hmm. but i didn't want to do anything insignificant you know mm-hmm. i didn't want to just launch uh you know a company that sold something on home shopping network or mm-hmm. you know something that would easily be replicated and the industry that i serve is highly highly commoditized mm-hmm. and you know i sure didn't want to create something that was more of a commodity. So talk to me about how you counsel people, because I I think it's so insightful to talk about people who've had their significance in the logo on their business card. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. talk to me about that. Yeah, well, I think this whole issue of making a transition is, uh, you know, from employee to entrepreneur is a really fascinating one and very, very, I think, underexplored, which is why we wrote this book. Um, and I, I think some of the key issues are, if you think about it, um, it's all about having sort of a, a power base. And kind of when you're um, working for a major corporation, there's an institutional power base um, that you sort of are hooked into, kind of like the mothership, and you're floating out there, you know, grafted onto it. And so you benefit from that, you know, the identity of the company, the marketing cloud it has, the visibility, all of those things. And when you launch and go off and become an entrepreneur, it's really different because you you have to build a different kind of power base. It's a you know it's kind of an internal power base. It's a power base that's based on what your goals are, what you're trying to accomplish as an entrepreneur. It's also based on how you want to work, which is a big issue for people. You know, one of the the major reasons why women go off and do start businesses. Um, uh, one of the key reasons is they, you know, they're uh, sometimes they're the values that they have are not sort of in sync with those of the marketplace, and they want to um, bring their own values into their work life, and they feel that one way to do that um, is to launch something and to be independent and you know be their own boss and create an environment that's say more inviting for other people or a work style, a lifestyle and work style that works better with their own needs if they're raising a family or whatever. So I think the the real issue is uh, if you're thinking about making this move, it's important to be very clear about why you're choosing to do it. Um, you know, there are many reasons why. Um, you know, economic is certainly, economic reasons are certainly right. big ones. There are many people out there in the economy. I mean, we've been talking a lot in the book, you know, it was published in 2008, but it's so interesting because of this economy, there's just been this resurgence of interest in it because there are so many people out there that we are calling entrepreneurs by necessity, you know, people who might not have chosen the entrepreneurial right. route but are seriously considering it or even, you know, consulting temporarily because of their situation. So it's really important to have a good handle on, on why you're choosing to make this move. And, you know, there can be any number of reasons, and there can be several reasons at once. You know, it can be economic, it can be you know, work style issues, it can be fulfillment. Right. Um, but that's really important, I think. So you you did a lot of interviews for this book. Mm-hmm. Can you pick one story that just really uh, stands out to you about uh, a startup? 
Yeah, you know, the one one of the ones that I love, um, I just love this person, and we've continued, uh, I'm in the touch with a lot of the people in, in the book, um, actually, but I'll just tell the story of Ronnie Fliss because um, I just love the story um, so much. She was actually had an interesting situation. She was in financial services, and um, her company had gone through about three different reorganizations, and she was forced to downsize her staff. And it was a very tough situation. And ultimately, after downsizing her staff, she was downsized. So she lost her job in financial services. Now, this was not in the current uh, meltdown. It was a previous financial downturn. But anyway, here she was. She was actually 51. She was in the computer field in financial services. And she was a woman. She had sort of a triple whammy kind of going for her. Right. And um, it was very tough sledding. Uh, originally, um, after this happened, she sort of regrouped. Um, she'd had even a stress illness as a result of all the pressure at her job um, that sort of magically disappeared when actually the job, when she was left the job. But she spent about six months, you know, looking for a new job and just couldn't find one. Um, it just wasn't happening. You know, age, there were a lot of issues. The, you know, the industry was contracting. So a lot of things were going on. Um, and one day she was sitting having coffee with a friend of hers and actually in her home and her, she has basset hounds, dogs. And this friend of hers said to her, well, you know, you love baking and you love dogs. Uh, why don't you make gourmet dog treats? You know, it was like out of the blue. And it wasn't even her idea, which is what I love. It was sort of someone else's idea. And she said, you know, I'm feeling a little low and I like to bake. You know, that's not a bad idea. So she actually went online and, you know, researched a few recipes and she started making these treats. And then what was very interesting and, and smart, and um, certainly I would advise everyone to do, is she, she, she drew on her background. She was in financial services, only she did data research. So she started researching the, you know, the food industry for dogs, the gourmet food industry, and she realized this is an explosive industry. There are a lot of baby boomers out there. Their kids are growing. They're empty nesting, and you know, their their animals, their dogs are becoming like their kids, and they're spending lots of money it seems on them. So this really piqued her interest, and she ended up ultimately starting a business called Fat Murray's Doggy Treats that she still continues to run out of her home. And it's been, um, you know, really um, very successful. And what's so interesting about it is that she, again, was not an entrepreneur. Uh, She was sort of an accidental entrepreneur, again, as many people are, actually. She sort of fell into this, but she was ready. And she used her background um, very in a very smart way. She built on the assets that she had in the corporate world to kind of take those same assets and bring them into this entrepreneurial venture. And, um, and she just constantly was changing and growing. I mean, she ran into, early on, she ran into a big problem with um, the formula for her um, treats. They were, um, there was something about them. They, weren't, um, they were getting like moldy on the shelves pretty quickly, oh, which no. is not a good thing. No. So she actually went to a food chemist. She reached out, got a food chemist very quickly to help her reformulate it. 
Um, she was going for her MBA at the time, and so she hooked into, um, got a lot of help from a professor who was very supportive of her taking this route and was constantly putting her in touch with people. She talked to other entrepreneurs. She had a mentor who was in a totally different field. I think it was the Mm -hmm. wine industry, but he was so helpful to her. He said, you know, if you're going to do this, you've got to price your dog biscuits down to the penny because you've got to know exactly how much it costs you to make them because you've got a very thin profit margin and you've really got to be able to move forward. So she just kept moving forward. She may make a mistake. She'd reach out. She'd get help. You know, she'd move forward. And um, she's been, uh, you know, very happy with the decision. Um, She said it was one of the best things she ever did. Um, It hasn't been easy always, but she's gotten tremendous support from her family and friends. And it's just a great success story because um, of the way she just approached it all with humor, with, you know, uh, resourcefulness, with uh, a lot of persistence and a drive to succeed. Absolutely. Well, that kind of brings us to the next chapter, which is uh, substitute brains for bucks. Mm -hmm. When you don't have money, you Mm -hmm. get creative. And I I can absolutely attest Mm -hmm. to what it is possible to do with almost nothing. So tell us a little bit about what's behind that chapter. Yeah, well, that was, um, you know, we were really looking, of course, at finance is a huge issue for anyone who's launching. And, you know, that's one of the first things people always ask you, you know, well, how much does it take and do I have enough? And everyone always feels they don't have enough. Um, Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I'll just say that quickly that, you know, most people, if you ask them, well, what's the biggest barrier to launching? They'll probably say money. But entrepreneurs will tell you entrepreneurs will tell you that that's not really the biggest barrier. If you really have a drive to launch, you will figure out how right. to launch cost effectively. They say it's persistence and the willingness to just keep going and handle the setbacks. It's sort of moxie, not money. That's the real, um, you know, the real kind of quality you need. But anyway, when we were uh, researching the book, we were just amazed by the just the creativity that people came up with in terms of substituting brains for bucks and we thought that's a great title for a chapter because it's really what launching is all about and you know over and over again we talked to people who had you know creative ideas for the way they they did things one woman started a you know she started a stroller strides which is now a huge franchise actually where um you know new mothers exercise with their babies and she launched this she was just a fitness um trainer and got this idea but she didn't have any money at all to launch it um so she bartered with uh, one of the the women she was giving training to was a lawyer so she bartered for some help from her to get started um Another woman needed uh, photographs for her website because she did chocolates, gourmet chocolates, and she wanted, you know, really high-quality photographs um, that she could put up on her website. So she bartered with a photographer, and in return for getting these photographs, she created gift baskets that he could give to his clients. Mm. And so, you know, there are just, you know, over and over when we talk to people, there were just, you know, these wonderful examples. And it was as if, you know, launching itself seemed to ignite people's ingenuity. You know, they just 
became that much more resourceful. And one of the big messages that came out of the book is that it's really possible to launch, and it's very important to launch in a way that you're comfortable with. You know, you've got to come up with a financial framework that you're comfortable with, and you've got to sort of work within those parameters. And there is a way to do that. And so most of the people we talked to launched, you know, on pretty modest amounts, and it was family and friends. They were not running out and getting bank loans. This was even before the downturn, and now it's almost <laughs> impossible. I mean, women right. are not also getting venture capital. We all know that, um, you know, because they're not often launching the kinds of businesses that venture capitalists look for. So they're going to, by definition almost, they're going to be underfunded. But right. that can be an asset, actually, instead of a liability if you're creative. Well, you know, one of the things that hopped out uh, at me from this chapter is to give up the paycheck player mentality. Yeah. And, you know, I just came off of what I refer to as a spectacular success. Mm-hmm. Actually, spectacular failure is what I say. But I think mm. in the end it's going to become the spectacular success Great. that I always wanted it to be. But but in, in the failure was mm-hmm. we did get funding. Mm. And and we I, I raised $7 million. Oh, and, my gosh. But, but I hired people mm-hmm. who were paycheck mentality executives. And, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't to, to put them mm-hmm. down personally because you are yeah. what you are. And if, sure. if you've always had the paycheck and you haven't had to use your MasterCard or Visa mm-hmm. to pay payroll or, you know, borrow from your kid's college fund, you know, to pay right. the developer – um, you know, if you haven't had to do that, it's quite different, and it's mm-hmm. such an adjustment. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's the one thing that so many entrepreneurs who do have great ideas and get great funding end up squandering that because of not giving up that whole mentality issue. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I would absolutely agree with you that it is, uh, you know, completely possible and, and really preferable mm-hmm. in many ways not to get funding uh, early on. You know, so, that is so true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about the four stages. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm completely enamored with your uh, picture of birthing the elephant and it <laughs> taking 22 months. And I, I'm going to go back and map out the 22 months of my business because uh, <laughs> it would be interesting to see yes. how that fit the four stages. Sure. But talk to us about those four stages. Well, the, uh, the four stages, you know, we basically, again, this was um, what was fun was this was, I um, mean, it was really based on, you know, the four stages we came up with came out of our interviews with entrepreneurs. And what we did was we interviewed people. We did these long, very intensive, in-depth interviews with people, and we started looking for patterns. And we sort of realized that over the first 22 months, and it's a little bit loose. I mean, there's certainly some flexibility there, but we sort of saw that people seem to be going through um, four stages and that we could map them. So the first stage, just to run down them quickly, the first stage we called Start Your Startup. And that's really about, you know, kind of launching in a very smart, kind of cost-effective way and looking at, say, the first 100 days, the first three months of your startup and really trying to make um, that 100 days count and get yourself off and running quickly and um, strategically. 
And that's really, really important because one of the things that happen when we launch, um, and anyone will tell you that this is true, is you're you're so excited, you know, you're spinning off a hundred ideas a day, you know, that that could, you know, you could be pursuing. Your businesses could go off in this direction, in that direction, and it's very easy to lose your focus. And the next bright, shiny thing comes along, and all all of a sudden you're excited. Um, but you really want to focus in that first 100 day, days on a couple of key goals that you have and just move forward kind of relentlessly with those and not let yourself be distracted and, you know, put those other great ideas kind of on a back burner so that you can deal with them later. But just figure out, you know, what you're intending to do and then move forward. Um, with that. And uh, the second stage is called, stage two, we called it Run Your Own Show. And that's really about this whole issue um, of making the transition from employee to entrepreneur. And so in that stage, we talk a lot about what it takes to think like an entrepreneur. You know, an entrepreneur um, goes over, under, around, and through any obstacle in their path on the way to their goal. That's how an entrepreneur thinks. And, um, you know, you've got to be willing to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to combine passion with persistence and just keep going. You've got to take sort of a figure it out or find it out approach. You know, you've got to have a lot of confidence that you can master whatever it is that you need to master at a particular stage. And you've got to be very proactive. So this chapter was really about how you begin to think like an entrepreneur, how you sort of let go of that employee and paycheck mentality and really shift gears and become entrepreneurial in the way that you approach the challenges that you have. Um, Then the third stage we called, um, which is sort of one of actually my favorite, um, I have to say I so enjoyed writing this, and it was called Turn Breakdowns into Breakthroughs. And what seems to happen, and it's so fascinating, um, in any, most people can, if they think about it, they'll they'll see that this is really true. That you know, in any creative endeavor of any kind, you sort of get to what I call the fall apart stage. You know, things are perking along pretty well. Right. You know, you think you know what you're doing; it's moving forward, and suddenly something happens. You hit kind of a big roadblock. Not a small problem, but something big, you know. You lose your hugest supplier or like Ronnie Fliss, you know, your product, you know, suddenly becomes defective and you've got to deal with that. So something threatens the whole business and it's sort of like a testing time where, you know, it's like the universe wants to know if you're really serious. So throw something big in your way. And this stage is all about marshalling your resistance, you know, turning a breakdown into a breakthrough. And we had so many examples of people talking about their businesses and how they had hit this stage. And the interesting thing is that if you keep going and you persist, you come out on the other side of it and somehow your business is stronger. It's a very mysterious process or you're clearer on what your intention is and what you want to do. But it's sort of like this trial by fire that you seem to need to go through. So it's a very fascinating stage. And we talked in the chapter, we gave like a lot of different strategies for how women who'd hit that point kind of got themselves through it. And that was very helpful, I think. And then the fourth stage um, we called um, find your business rhythm. 
because what we found was once women had been in business for a while, um, this is sort of toward the end, the fourth stage of the cycle, what happens is they find out often that the business they think they were in is not really the business that they're in, (laughs) or the market they were thinking they were going to go for is not really the market that they're targeting. And so it's sort of interesting. It's as if your business needs to kind of reorient itself a bit, and you need to listen you need to listen to, you know, your customers, the people that you're dealing with, and you need to um, then adjust and fine-tune. So it's kind of a very interesting stage that you go through. But but once you're kind of through that, um, you have a much clearer idea, and it's very interesting. Often people started at one place, and at the end of kind of this cycle, however long it took them, their business is very different. It isn't what they thought it was going to be when they started. You know, that's not true for everyone, but it seems to be true for quite a number of people. So those were the four stages in a nutshell. So let's uh, let's wrap up with just running down the list of the ten biggest pitfalls. Because again, I think you know, even women who are in a corporate job, Mm -hmm. and you know, the the CEO you know has a shiny new object. Right, sure. and, and we see CEOs like this, or chief yeah. marketing officers, or whoever mm-hmm. it is, you know, comes along and they've got a new program, they've got a new this, right. a new that, and you know, it feels a little bit like the flavor of the month, but you're not sure this could be the big one. Right, and you know, <laughs> what are what are the ten biggest mistakes? Because again, I, I suspect these apply as much to corporate uh, people who are looking at new initiatives as actually going out and starting your own venture. Right. I I think a lot of them do. I think you're absolutely right, Chicky. The first one uh, that we talked about in the book is sort of romanticizing your startup. And um, a lot of people tend to do that. They think it's – they sort of have this fantasy about what it will be like when they're on their own, their own boss. You know, they'll be able to – you know, kind of, uh, you know, have total control over their time. They'll be able to manage. And the truth of the matter is that when you're launching, you're not running your business. Your business is running you. I mean, it really is true. It takes a (laughs) tremendous amount of time and energy. And it's very important to sort of understand, you know, to go out if you're thinking of launching or even starting, you know, a new division in your company, whatever. You know, go out, talk to people, get a realistic sense of what's really involved. So it's like the concept would be go for it, but be prepared. You know, know what you're getting into. That's really important. Um, the second pitfall that we talked about is um, bad help. You know, <laughs> that it's really important to find advisors when you're launching that you can rely on. And um, and a number of the people said that we talked to said, and especially when it comes to legal advice when you're launching, you really don't want to skimp on that because there are often some issues of you know there can be. Um, intellectual property issues that you're dealing with or how you structure your business. There are some things that we're leaving. Well, and especially if you are in partnership. Yes. And, you know, again, I mean, I I have said the words, and and back when Mm -hmm. I had my first consulting partnership, oh, he and I agree on everything. And and, and I remember my attorney Mm. saying, it may not always be like Mm. that. (laughs) And it's like, Really? <laughs> and again, that that naivete of yes. of still being romanticizing things. Uh, yeah, I, I have absolutely. seen that the movie partnership around. Yeah, there are a lot of benefits to partnership, but it's also it's really there's a flip side to it. Uh, right. The dark side of partnership. It can there's certainly something there. Um, then the third pitfall we talk about is kind of what we 
call bad networking, which is kind of confusing networking with selling. Uh, and networking when you're launching a business is really, really, it's important just as it is when you're um, in the corporate world. But a lot of people um, kind of don't um, don't sort of understand the idea behind, you know, that you give before you get. Um, and that that's sort of enlightened networking, and that it's really important when you're reaching out to people that you um, you know you offer them something in return for the help that they give you, um, and that there's this kind of circle of influence that you're creating, and it's really important to sort of network in um, kind of a, a, a way that allows other people to feel that they are benefiting from your success. Um, so it's very important to network kind of in the right way. And then right. the fourth pitfall we talk about is burnout. That um, And that's a huge issue. I mean, it's a huge issue for anyone working. I mean, most people in corporate jobs are working the jobs of two or three people now. Um, an entrepreneur, you're working sort of 24-7. I was just having lunch with an entrepreneur, and she said, that's what I'm doing, you know. She's in launch mode. So it's very important to sort of recharge yourself and to try even during your day to build in different ways to relax a little bit, to, um, you know, kind of de-stress yourself so that you can handle the things that come up. Um, Because when you're burned out, you know, a relaxed mind is a creative mind, and that's what you want. And if we're burned out, we can't really function at our best. Um, The fifth pitfall is misspending. You know, you want to kind of stay lean, just what we were talking about. You don't want to spend too much to promote your image. You want to put your funds where they belong into product development, you know, where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Um, And a seventh pitfall is, um, this is, I guess, actually for launching, is really underpricing. Pricing is a huge issue for people, and Mm. it's very tough to price accurately. But if you underprice when you're starting, you know, you're sort of behind the eight ball. You're always running to catch up. So it's oh, really yeah, and in do. a services business, yes. I mean, having it's, having been in services for 15 sure. years, um, you know, pricing is at the heart. But, you know, I, I remember the day when when somebody was telling me how much I should price per day, and I couldn't even spit it out. I mean, it yeah. just sounded so outrageous to me. I know. And I now know. if I had to take that per day, I'd be really, really upset. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. But it's it's tough. And actually women, it's interesting. There's uh, Studies have shown that women tend to underprice relative to men. If you put a woman and a man in a room and you give them and they pitch the same business, I mean, separately, the woman will always ask for less for some reason, 90 right. you know, percent of the time. She will, you know, with the same sort of qualification, she'll be going for a lower price. And why is that? I don't know why we continue to do that, but we need to stop. Um, and then uh, pitfall number eight is uh, costly advertising we talk about, you know, that it's very important to really, when you're launching, to promote your business yourself as much as you can. Advertising is costly, and it's not really necessarily the best route to exposure for a small business. Um, You know, you can be highly successful promoting your business on your own um, and being your own PR person. Um, A lot of women have done that very successfully, and it's important. And Pitfall 9 is an interesting one. It's lack of self-trust. It's really not listening to your gut. And a lot of the entrepreneurs we talked to emphasized how important it is to listen to yourself. You know, you are the um, the single uh, most knowledgeable person about your business. No one else. You can have a panel, a panel of experts to help you. But in the end, you know, you've got to make the big decisions yourself. 
And right, that's right. really, really important. And then the fourth one is kind of, uh, the tenth one is actually, uh, you know, thinking small instead of big, you know. <laughs> Sometimes we get so caught up in the minutiae, especially when you're a solo entrepreneur, I am. You know, I work on my own. I have to do still everything. Um, you know, you can get caught up in the, the day-to-day, the trivia, and you forget to focus on the big picture, whether it's marketing or, you know, kind of thinking of that next thing you want to do, you want to bring into being. So it's important to kind of always think big, you know. So those are the, the pitfalls, and I think a lot of them do apply to um, executive situations as well as entrepreneurship. Oh, I, I would totally agree. Well, Karen, I'll tell you what. Your your book is incredibly instructive. Oh, it thank is you. highly practical in the way it's laid out. And and mm-hmm. again, our regulars know that uh, you know not not all authors uh, they they may know how to write, but they don't all know how to lay out a book in a way mm-hmm. uh, that keeps you engaged from start to finish. And I love how you weave in the things that can actually be cut out. In fact, you, you, it looks like you put little scissor lines to cut mm-hmm. things out. And, um, you know, you, you've got lots of checklists. And, again, I love those because it, it just, as, as you're going through it, it really helps you stop and assess the situation where you are right now. And, and again, it may be very, very different than where you've been. Uh, but I just thank you so much for your oh, time. You. And, uh, you know, if we have any comments or questions, I want to make sure uh, we do that before we let you go. Sure. But I had promised you I'd let you go by 445. Oh, that's okay. I have A little time. bit late in I'd that. I'd be happy to answer any questions if there are any there. Great. And any comments or questions? This is Carolyn. Uh, I had one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karen, uh, as you mentioned, Stage 3, the uh, turning breakdowns into breakthroughs, it reminded me I had a kind of an interesting experience a couple of weeks ago that maybe you can give me your thoughts on, and that is um, I've been talking to these two fellows who've started a, a business around the you know data and transactions and all. Super smart guys, and they run a number of businesses. They're a private equity firm, and they started this company a couple of years ago. And I've you know been talking to them over time about how I might come in and, and take a leadership role. And um, the last time I talked to them a couple of weeks ago. And um, you know, they, they have they've been perking along at break even, not really doing as as well as they would have thought. And so now they're thinking about simply shutting it down or selling it. Oh. Okay. And and I was both repulsed and admiring. Mm-hmm. I, I was admiring in terms of, you know, wow, there's a lot of times where I've continued with businesses where I feel like I was, I was the last one giving it CPR, and everybody mm. else left the room. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I kind of admired their, um, you know, very unemotional. Uh, strategic, analytical, yeah, ain't making money, to heck with it. Um, and then on the other side, I thought, oh, you know, where's your commitment, where's your passion for this? Mm. So mm-hmm. so thinking about breakdowns to breakthroughs, how, how do you know when you're in one, you know, whether it's a breakdown that should really cut your losses or whether oh, there is light at the end of the tunnel? Oh gosh, that's such a that's such a good question, and it's you know it's a little hard to generalize. I will say because there are so so many different situations, but um, I guess what 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 I would say is um, you know if people's commitment is really waning, you know they're not going to have if the business especially has hit a really major crisis, or you know if they're if they're um, intention and involvement and commitment to it is on the downswing, it's going to be sort of tough to navigate their way through that because, you know, you need to marshal more energy when you're in a crisis to deal with something. But, you know, one issue 
is um, I was trying. I'm trying to think back to some of the advice, some of the things that people talked about at that point. And if you know your feeling is that looking from the outside, that hey, there may still really be something you know, here that can be pulled together and maybe this is just a road bump that we're going through. You know, um, it might be interesting. I know two entrepreneurs who are going through a tough time, what they did was they they hired someone, someone from the outside, someone totally independent, and they basically paid that person for a day's worth of brainstorming with them when they hit a tough time. And the idea was we need to get an independent kind of outside someone to come in, look at our situation, and just, you know, kind of creatively brainstorm with us about what our different options are. And then we can make the decision ourselves, but we need someone to help us think this through. So I don't know if that's the kind of option that, you know, might be something worth thinking about with this particular situation, but... Yeah, and I think also, Karen, well. um, it, mm-hmm. it really depends for an entrepreneur mm-hmm. what they've been through before. Because sure. I know having gone through, you know, raising a significant amount of money, not mm-hmm. being successful, having to yeah. shut the company down, letting 20-plus sure. people go. Yeah. Um, next time when somebody mm-hmm. says, should we cut our losses now, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. might say yes. Mm-hmm. And whereas before, there sure. was no way I would have given yeah. up. Absolutely. And and there was no way I did. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. thought through literally to the bitter end. Mm-hmm. And um, so, mm-hmm. you know, Carolyn, I, I don't know, uh, yeah. you know, the no, folks you're talking about, point. but, okay. but mm-hmm. I tell you what, and, and mm-hmm. people don't always share their financial situation with yeah, you. Sure. And, you know, I mean, Carolyn, I think I've shared with you, you know, we ended up going through Chapter 7 as a result of our situation. And, you know, and I mean, there's no scarlet bee that I have to wear around my neck now, but, um, you know, you do have to make choices, and maybe there's nothing left to draw from, and that's the other sure. thing. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. It can be very painful to take mm-hmm. it to the bitter end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I think but empowering at the same time. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it any differently. I mean, I really yeah. wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that you made a very good point that it really depends on where you've been and where you've yeah. come from, whether you would, you know, make that choice the second time. So. Well, and also I think the spouse mm-hmm. picture, if there are spouses in the picture, mm-hmm. even though the primary entrepreneur would want to say yes, they mm-hmm. really can't do that without destroying their family situation, mm-hmm. you know, if the other person is saying no. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, mm-hmm. it unfortunately isn't that isolated incident. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. That's helpful. Thank you. Both. Mm-hmm. All right, great. Well, are we going to let Karen go shovel snow? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, the snow is melted for now. I hear there's more okay. on the way. <laughs> well, if there's anyway. more on the way, you can come yeah. to Florida because it's oh, okay. <laughs> totally lovely outside, but I, I sure. won't bore you with our temperature no, that's and all okay. of that. <laughs> every once in a while, I call my Florida friends and they say, oh, yes, we're looking at the television now, watching everyone shovel their snow, and we're so glad we're down here. So, well, anyway, well we, we pay for it in the summertime when it's uh, 90% humidity and, and 90 degrees out. So. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, anyway, well, Karen, great. Thank you so, so much uh, for your time today. And uh, please feel free to join us uh, any Friday. We've got a lot of uh, the Executive Girlfriends group speakers who have become 
uh, regular uh, members oh, and participants. Great. And if you need a need a Friday lift up, uh, we are always here at four o'clock. Oh, that's great! And I could just pick in that same number, right? That I called. Exactly. And hopefully now and, I have uh, the right uh, code number. So. Yeah, and our okay. our website, uh-huh. which has the schedule of speakers, right. is www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. That is our public website and Mm -hmm. uh, again I think we've got uh, out a couple of weeks of uh, showing who our speakers are Mm -hmm. and uh, let's just see before I turn off the recording I can share with everybody uh, our speaker next week is Elena Love and unfortunately my email got wiped out a couple of weeks ago so I don't have Elena's uh, book title but uh, anyway join us if you can And uh, thank you again so much, Karen. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. All right. Terrific. And I am going to stop the recording now because what's said on the rest of the egg call stays on the egg call. Mm Mm-hmm.